talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. In um, reflecting about what to speak about this morning, I um, I've been inspired to uh, kind of review or think about or reflect on over the coming weeks, maybe many weeks, <laughs> of um, the Buddhist the the basic teachings of the Buddha. He is famously said to have said what I teach is suffering and its end and so everything that he taught all of the tools all of the the techniques all of his discourses were pointing to this pointing to this particular understanding and it is said in his own life this was kind of what motivated him to leave home and to uh, begin a spiritual journey. And he saw suffering happening and wondered, is it possible? Is it possible to be free of suffering? And in his journey, he, he, he started with the, um, the teachers of his day who taught a lot. They were kind of my understanding, two of the kind of um, explorations he made with the teachers of his day were around, you know, deep states of concentration, which he, he learned from, from his teachers, deep states of concentration, and also the ascetic practices, a practice of really denying the body, um, you know, mortifying the body, being you know, treating it in a way. There, there was an understanding that if if there was a, a mortification of the body, the soul would transcend the body in some way. And so he practiced both of these to great uh, depth. And yet neither one of them, he found at, so, at some point, the, the practices of concentration, he's, he, he's uh, said to have understood that they offered beautiful states while he was doing them. That, that the, the, they created wonderful experiences while he was doing them. But when he came out of them, it's like everything's still the same. There's still all of this suffering going on. And that's what I'm interested in. And so he left those teachers and uh, started pursuing some of the other, other um, practices of self-mortification and uh, found that that also was not the way. And so he began his own exploration. His um, quest around suffering in a way, I, I see him looking at it as kind of a scientist. It's like, okay, what is this? What is this suffering? I'm going I'm to figure this out. I'm going to explore it. But not by thinking about it. He'd had enough training in being present with experience that my understanding is he, he kind of turned those trainings of being with his present moment experience with some degree of concentration and began exploring this, um, what is suffering? What is, what is suffering? So he began to try to understand the experience of suffering. Through that exploration, he is said to have seen or recognized that it is possible to come to the ending of suffering. But there's a little bit of a caveat here in that it's not the ending of suffering that we typically, as we typically would define it. And it's not the ending of war. It's not the ending of physical pain. It's not the ending of... well at least being free in our own system. So it's said the Buddha became free from suffering. But he still dealt with physical pain and he still 
dealt with his 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 father's kingdom engaging in war trying to stop a war and so he still was very active in the world engaging with the way suffering what we typically call suffering comes about and yet from a very different perspective and so this this perspective this uh, what suffering is the the kind of suffering that can be released this is an important piece to understand the um And so it said that he came to an understanding that it is possible to be free from suffering. And as he did that, he also recognized how that can be cultivated. How it can be that we, not only him, but we, he he was able to articulate what he understood and what he explored in his experience to help him come to this realization that it is possible to be free of suffering and to be free of suffering. And so to come to that realization, he articulated a path that we can walk. And so the most famous articulation of what the Buddha understood is framed in the Four Noble Truths. The truth of suffering. And again, uh, to me, the, 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 the... the way this is stated, the truth of suffering is that it's pointing to what a specific, a specific kind of way our minds relate to experience. The truth of suffering, the truth, often it's framed as the origin of suffering, the truth of the arising of suffering, sometimes it's said, the truth of the cause of suffering, sometimes it's said, the second noble truth. That, there, that this is pointing to, in some ways, that the suffering of our, of our minds, the suffering, the ways that we get caught by um, wanting things to be different, the ways that we get caught by wanting to hold on to things that are slipping away that are impermanent and unreliable. These, these, um, these sufferings are not random, but that they have, it's, it's not that, that we're kind of these hapless beings wandering through the world with suffering happening to us, there is, there is something that is conditioning that suffering. And that something that's happening that's conditioning that suffering is something that we have a capacity to release. And so he, he indicated or said that this, this cause of suffering, this arising of suffering can be let go of. And that will lead to the end of suffering. This is the third noble truth. That as we understand suffering, we'll begin to recognize how it comes to be, how it is put together. And that putting together being understood begins to help us to understand that we can release it. That it, that it, it can be let go of. And that letting go brings the release from suffering, the third noble truth. And the fourth noble truth, that there is, there are actions that we can take that will support us in this process. Essentially a path that we can walk. So the Buddha was a really practical kind of spiritual seeker and spiritual teacher he didn't simply say, you need to believe these things. These, these four noble truths aren't, aren't something that to just believe and somehow believing will transform us. But he always pointed to that we need to engage 
that that there's one one place where it said that the the Buddha or the the beings that have freed themselves have walked this path for themselves. They've taken this action. And that is how you can also free yourself. He said, the Buddhas point the way, but you have to do the work for yourself. And so this is an active practice. It is, it is a prescription in a way. You can think of the the fourth noble truth is the prescription for what ails us. This path that we can walk on. And we can look at the whole of the four noble truths. The truth of suffering. This is, this is the diagnosis. He points to what, what ails us in our lives. And in this pointing to what ails us, it's not... Again, he, he, there's a connection between what's happening in the world and what ails us. But the part that ails us that he's pointing to for this prescription is not, is not that what's happening outside of us will necessarily change. Although it is quite amazing to watch what happens outside of us as we become different beings we are part of a kind of a cause and effect loop in our society, in our culture, in our families, in our, in our friends, in how we are in the world. And so as we change, as we walk this path, it necessarily will have an impact on the world. It will have an effect on the world. And yet, the the understanding about suffering is that we can be at ease, at peace, given any conditions in the world. That we do not have to wait until conditions in the world become perfect before our hearts can be at ease. And so this is the, the suffering, the ill the ill, the, our, our, what ails us is not so much what's happening out there. What's happening out there is, contributes absolutely to what ails us. But what keeps us from peace in a moment is our relationship to what's happening out there. And so this is the suffering that the, that the Buddha is pointing to, our relationship to what's happening. This, um, and in this relationship, actually, is uh, kind of the connection to the second noble truth. The cause or the arising of suffering or the origin of suffering. It's said in the, the, most of the expositions on the, the Four Noble Truths that the cause of suffering is craving. Basically, craving either for things to be, uh, things that we have that we like to, to keep them, to, to, to hold on to them, to kind of grip around them, and for things that we don't like to get rid of them. So this, uh, the craving is a kind of a, often non-acknowledgement of what is actually here. When we are, when we are craving, we are, we, are, we are projecting ourselves kind of into the future or trying to hold on to something. It's a, the, the craving is not kind of in alignment with the way things actually are. The way things actually are impermanent. Everything that we experience, impermanent. Not going to last for that long. Some things seem to last for longer than others, but in our direct moment experience, nothing lasts for very long. that things are unreliable because they are impermanent. 
They are not a reliable place for us to have happiness, to find, to find happiness. And yet we so... Um, that's basically what we've learned in our lives. That we find happiness, we get some happiness by getting something that we want, by getting rid of something that we don't want. And there is a little bit of happiness that comes with that. That's, not, that's, that's undeniable. There's a little bit of happiness that comes with getting what we want or getting rid of what we don't want. And yet that kind of happiness is also very fleeting. It doesn't last that long. And so the, um, the way that we have learned to find happiness and the, the kind of the best that we think it can get is this kind of happiness that comes from getting what we want or getting rid of what we don't want. And then having that end, having that, that little bit of happiness end, then we think, well, the last time, the last time that I was happy was when I got something that I want or got rid of something that I didn't want. And so I guess I'll do that again. And so the, the whole way that we have been conditioned to find happiness is for just these little moments of a very fleeting kind of happiness. And that's as good as we think it gets. We think if we can create something where we string together those moments, that that is happiness. That's as, that's the, as best it would be, the best it could be. And yet, the Buddha is said to have found a much deeper and more reliable kind of happiness, not by trying to get what he wanted, not by, by trying to string moments of sense pleasure together, but essentially through kind of aligning himself. I think one of the ways I could, I could frame the, the happiness of letting go of suffering is that we, we really align ourselves with the truth that things are impermanent and unreliable. We stop trying to cling to things that are not reliable. We stop trying to hold on, stop trying to crave in that way. That that release from craving is the freedom from suffering. And this points to something that I think is really interesting about the second noble truth. Often it, it is described of the second noble truth, the craving, this wanting things to be a certain way, is the origin of suffering. And yet the normal way we think about origin or cause is the cause of suffering. The, no, the normal way we think about a cause is that a causes B. You know, A causes B. A is not B, but A causes B. That's what we normally think of in terms of a cause. But there's a little bit different understanding about this cause or this origin of this second noble truth because the craving, that, that uh, tightening around wanting things to be a certain way, basically wanting things to be permanent and reliable and controllable, wanting things to be a certain way, that that craving is already suffering. As soon as that craving happens, we are experiencing constriction, tightness of mind and body. It already is suffering. So the arising of craving is the arising of suffering. And, and, and yet it's helpful to kind of, the Buddha kind of pointed back so that, that all suffering has within it this craving, some kind of craving things to be permanent, reliable, controllable, some kind of craving for things to be basically other than they are kind of non-alignment with this truth. And that is already suffering. And yet, we don't notice this. Often we don't notice that this is already suffering because of the way our minds work. 
You know, we, um, when we're craving something, what's going on? Like if we're craving something that's pleasant, why would that be suffering? You know, that, that and, and why would we not see it as suffering, both of those? So we, we often will not see that as suffering because when we're craving something pleasant, our minds have this capacity to construct an idea about what life would be like if we had that thing. And so that's going on in our minds when we're wanting something pleasant. We are actually not wanting the actual thing, which is kind of interesting. And you can, you can begin to see this as you start to look in your own experience. Begin to see. Like when you want even something that's relatively near at hand, you know, like a piece of chocolate or something. There's the chocolate there, and we think that that's actually what we want, but in the moments before we pick it up and put it in our mouths, what we want is the idea of the pleasure that it's going to give us. And so there's this, this construction in our minds. We have an idea. This thing is going to give me pleasure. And so that idea itself is often experienced as pleasant. The idea of having something that we want, the idea of being in control, uh, you know, that, that pleasure actually extends also to when we want to get rid of something we don't want. We create the idea in our mind about what it's going to be like when we get rid of it. We're going to feel like, and we're going to feel like we're in control when we get rid of it. And so the, the mind creates this this idea about what it's going to be like, and that's actually that's actually what we want. We want the idea. And so we are lost in the idea, in the wanting, in that craving. We, we, want, we want this idea and we're kind of in the world of that. We are not actually noticing what is the actual experience of craving. Because our minds have kind of taken a step to the side and are attending to the pleasant thing that we want or the idea of the pleasantness that's going to be there when we get rid of it. And so we are not noticing that there is already suffering here in this moment in the very wanting. And we can begin, we can begin to see that. We can begin to, to notice that craving is already suffering. Why would I want to do that? <laughs> That's a good question. Why, why would I want to do that? I certainly, I certainly had this question when I first started looking at my own experience. It's like, wow, this is not pleasant. Why would I want to do this? Looking at the, the wanting itself is not pleasant. And if we're, looking at, if we're looking at or exploring difficult states of mind like anger and aversion, they are, they are very clearly unpleasant very clearly painful and suffering in the moment of experiencing them. And so turning to look at them, turning to observe them, out to us that they are suffering. And this comes back to that first noble truth. We begin to understand suffering for what it is. We, we are experiencing that suffering or that the system, let's say the system is experiencing and um, experiencing the consequences, I'll say, that the system is experiencing the consequences of that suffering, whether we recognize it or not. And when we don't recognize it, essentially what, what we're doing is engaging in conditioning the habit of following through on greed or aversion, which are kind of two forms of craving, greed and aversion, we're conditioning greed and aversion and getting what we want, getting that little moment of happiness is, is further conditioning that, that craving. Because again, it's like that's, that's the, the, most that we, the best that we know. That's as good as we think it can get. So we, um, in the ignoring of the um, experience of suffering that's associated with the craving, with the greed and aversion, we are actually missing that we are perpetuating a process. We're perpetuating a cycle of suffering by following through 
on greed and aversion. Now it's difficult to imagine or understand because we are so caught in the habit of craving. And we are so uh, conditioned towards that that we, it's very hard for us before we begin to explore and our experience in a new way, before we begin to recognize, wow, this, this craving is actually already suffering. Before we, before we begin to do that, it's very hard for us to, uh, to believe that we would do anything or engage in the world in any way unless this wanting or this craving were functioning. And so that's, that's the way we've navigated our lives. So much of our lives has been, has been because of greed and aversion as the motivator, because of this craving as a motivator, it's very hard for us to imagine what it would be like to be motivated if this craving weren't happening. And so that itself continues to perpetuate because there's a, a deep delusion in there a deep delusion in delusion in the craving that believes this is the only way anything happens. When we're caught by that craving, that craving is, is convincing us that the only way I'm going to do anything, going to get anywhere, going to be anyone, going to have anything, is by acting on this craving. So this craving fundamentally has a deep delusion in it and it cannot fathom, it cannot understand that there are other motivations, wholesome motivations, motivations of an open heart rather than a constricted heart, motivations that will inspire us to act in the world, not from greed, aversion, and ignorance, but from compassion, from love, from wisdom, from generosity. There's many beautiful reasons why we will act in the world. And so this, this is a major shift for us in terms of understanding. And so again, this comes back to that first truth, understanding, understanding suffering. So this is the ill. I was talking about the medical model, the, 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 the ill of the, the, what ails us is the suffering. The, uh, the, the diag- the, that's our, that's, so that's our diagnosis. And the cause of that diagnosis is this craving. It's like any time there's suffering, somewhere in there is going to be the seed of ignorance and Craving, the, 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 the misunderstanding that craving is the only way I'm going to do anything is kind of at the root of that suffering. And so that, uh, that is, is the kind of the diagnosis and the, the reason why we, like if you're, if you're ill, you have this, this illness and here's the cause of the illness. And when you, when you recognize or identify the cause, then there is a prescription. And the prescription that the Buddha offered around craving is to abandon it. Now that's hard to do if, if we think that the only way we do anything in the world is because of craving. It's very threatening to abandon it. And yet, as we start to, um, to be curious about our experience and all of this curiosity that I'm talking about, the, the way of exploring our experience, this is basically laid out in the Eightfold Path, the prescription that the Buddha offers, the, the cure. Develop the Eightfold Path. That the, um, the curiosity of exploring our experience begins to help us to understand things in a different way. We begin to understand the suffering and um, recognize how it's put together. And actually we are aided here. Actually one of the great things about the way our system is, the way our human organism is, is that... um, 
Yeah, my, my understanding and my sense is that as a human organism, uh, the organism itself wants to move in the direction of well-being. So there's a kind of a, you know, a gravitational pull in the direction of well-being. And yet also the way our system, unfortunately, well, I don't know unfortunately, but because the same unfortunate misunderstanding helps us to... Um, that unfortunately, in a way, that we can uh, choose or, or our minds create ideas about what will lead to that well-being and we believe them. And that kind of uh, can override our organic kind of systemic pull towards well-being because we have ideas about what will lead us to well-being. Most notably, getting what I want is what will lead me to well-being. And so we are engaging at, the, at a kind of a very high, misunderstood level, exploring, moving towards well-being. And we have this capacity as, as human beings to make choices about what we think will lead us to well-being and what we think will lead us away from well-being. And this is the piece that, that actually serves us in our spiritual life, is that we can actually begin to make different choices. And yet the habitual way that we engage, the habitual way that we engage in making choices is that we, we end up um, believing that a very unskillful choice, this, this choice to act on craving, is actually going to make us happy. So that's how we have engaged in the world and, and our organism's direction or pull towards well-being has kind of been heisted or co-opted by this belief that craving has, by this misunderstanding that craving has. And so the, that we're, we end up doing things actually that pull us in the opposite direction from well-being. But we're not aware of that happening. We're confused and misunderstanding what's going on. And yet when we start to recognize very directly in the moment. Oh, this craving itself, this aversion itself, this anger, this confusion, this, this uh, wanting is already suffering. When we know that, and it's not masked by the idea that that pleasant thing is going to make me feel better in 10 minutes or 2 minutes or 5 days or 3 months, whatever projection we, we have, when we're not when we're not living in that projected fantasy and we're seeing, oh, this experience right now, this is already suffering, then our system gets a different kind of education. And in, in having an organism that is experiencing the lack of well-being in the moment, our system begins to orient us towards letting go of that. And so the very observation, the very uh, curiosity about what actually suffering is helps the normal movement of our organism move in the direction of a different kind of well-being. It's not, it's not fighting the normal movement of our organism, of our, of our, of our humanness, but it's getting more... Uh, more accurate information about what suffering is. And that supports the mind to begin to let go. That abandoning, the letting go of the craving. In my own practice, I've seen, there are times when we can recognize that we are craving something or wanting to get rid of something. And and sometimes we can recognize, wow, that's not so helpful. And let go a little bit of it. But mostly what I've seen is that the, the practice lies in being aware of the craving, being aware of the greed and the aversion and the confusion that underlies it. And having the patience and the trust to recognize that the movement towards the letting go is an organic process, is a natural process that will happen as we trust our normal movement 
towards well-being to take effect with this different information, with this new information about what suffering actually is. And so we begin to let go. It's a process. It's, it's not something that... The letting go itself isn't something we can necessarily do. But it is the natural direction of our organism given the mindfulness, the awareness of the craving, of the greed and aversion. There's a natural movement towards that letting go, which is great news. The way our system is organized has gotten us caught in this mess, and yet also the way our system is organized can help get us uncaught from this mess if we are curious about this moment's experience, this present moment experience. And so that this is pointing to the prescription, the, the Eightfold Path. Begins with, uh, I'll just name them first, and they are right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. I look at five of those as being, or six of those as being practices, what we do. The first two, right view and right uh, intention, are kind of more the orientation, a different orientation to it's like, you know, if, we, if we're going somewhere, if we're, if we're on a map, if we're on a path, we need to know where we're going. We need to know something about the lay of the land. And to me, this is what right view is. It's kind of the lay of the land. It's the lay of the land around suffering. It points to a lot of what I've been speaking to. Right view is pointing to the way that we have habitually gone about finding happiness is not a very reliable kind of happiness and that there's a different way. And so this is pointing us in a different direction. It's, it's, it's creating a different map to travel. So this to me is right view in a very, very broad brush way. And then given a different perspective on uh, that map, it's kind of like we've been map on on a certain map and believing that this is this is the map that's going to make us happy and we're just given a completely new map it's like wow that's different <laughs> if we have some trust in this new map we have some sense of even just an inkling that For me, the way the inkling was is, wow, I have been trying really hard for 35 years to be happy and it's not working. Somebody else gave a book about Buddhist practice and I read that book and I didn't understand much of the map. But I did understand a couple things. I understood first that it said it's possible to be happy that's good. And the other thing was it, it pointed to mindfulness, being aware of what's going on in your experience, whatever that is. And for me, it was a lot of anger. And so that was my very first practice. So I got this new map and there was a, the person who had sent it to me, I trusted that person, that person had said, you know, this has really helped me. You can try this. Why don't you try this? And so there's a little bit of trust. There was a new map I was completely confused about how that map would be actually lead to happiness, but the map I had been using was not working. So I was willing to abandon that map, the old map, and try a new one. Now, when you get a map, just looking at the map doesn't do much for you. You have to start walking. See how that map connects to your direct experience. The map is not the journey. So begin looking at your direct experience, begin looking at experience. And so the, the second aspect of the, of the Eightfold Path is this pointing to engaging. It's like, 
with an understanding that this new map might be useful, the intention begins to arise to engage with the, with the terrain, with the new terrain. Not just look at the map, not just read the map, not just fantasize about where it might lead you, but actually take some steps. And so this is the intention. This is right intention in the Eightfold Path. And so these first two, right view and right intention, are crucial to get us in the terrain of engaging with these teachings. And as I said earlier, the the Buddha was very practical. He, he pointed to how we can ourselves walk this path. And so in that engagement, the first, one of the first parts the Buddha pointed to was ethical conduct, non-harming. And this makes sense in so many ways because so much harm happens in the world, so much suffering happens in the world when we are engaged in non-ethical conduct. So that's, I mean, we look around, we look around the world and the vast majority of the suffering that's happening out there is happening because people are not engaging in refraining from killing, refraining from taking what's not given, refraining from causing harm through sexuality, refraining from harsh, divisive, false speech. These, these basic principles, ethical principles. And so the Buddha points to, if you want to find happiness in your own life, find a way towards non-suffering in your own life, this has to be a grounding. Non-harming has to be a ground. The ground of how we act in the world. So, right speech, right action, right livelihood. Engaging in the world with non-harming as a basic principle. Because if we are um, harming in the world, you know, we, in some ways we are harming ourselves. We are not only creating suffering out there, but we also create suffering in here because another way our system is designed is that when suffering happens out there, we feel it in here. You can play with this. You can, you can notice if you're curious about how you are when you hear about something that's happened in the world. And it doesn't have to be something you've done. Just, just anything that happens in the world. You hear something. About the war in Syria. The gassing the chemical weapons attack in Syria. You hear that. Let yourself feel it. It hurts. Often we want to push it away because it hurts. But we are designed as human beings to resonate with each other, to resonate when somebody else is suffering, to resonate. The heart that is not constricted with craving when somebody else is suffering resonates with compassion and wants to act to alleviate that suffering. When somebody is experiencing delight and joy, our heart is designed to resonate with that. And so this resonant heart, if we are engaging in ways that create harm in the world, Often what we end up doing is, is blocking off our heart, creating hardness around our heart so we don't feel that suffering. And that itself is suffering. And so engaging in ethical conduct is a ground of this practice. And then the Buddha points to cultivation of mind cultivating our minds so that we can begin to understand our experience in a different way. The the, the mental cultivation is right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So we make the effort to engage, to practice. We also make the effort to engage from the perspective of right view, which 
helps us to understand that greed, aversion, and delusion, this craving, creates, ends up creating more suffering. And so the one framing of this right effort is that we explore making the effort for the wholesome states, making the effort for non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, or to put it more positively towards generosity, love, and wisdom. So creating you know, the, the intention to move in the direction of wholesome states of mind and letting go of states based in greed, aversion, and delusion and letting go of actions based in greed, aversion, and delusion. And so this is, this is part of right effort that we incorporate our um, being, being aware, being mindful, the next part of the Eightfold Path of what's happening what's happening in our, in our minds, in our hearts, around our choices. And exploring the possibility of not repressing, not denying that we are experiencing greed, aversion, and delusion, because we do and we will. But to relate to it in a new way, instead of automatically acting on it, when we become mindful of it, we have the possibility to open to it and experience, experience the suffering of it in a different way. And that experiencing of suffering of it in a different way is leading us towards the letting go of it. Instead of acting on greed, aversion, and delusion in our habitual way, instead we act with mindfulness and compassion to open to what is the experience of anger? What is the experience of hatred? What is the experience of confusion? How does this feel right now? And as I I mentioned before, that is the process that, that kind of hooks to our organic, systemic pull towards well-being and supports a letting go of those. So it's vastly different. Being aware of something like anger, for instance, is vastly different than knowing that we're angry and acting out on it. We can know that we're angry while we're angry, but not really be aware of how that anger is affecting us. And this is, this is the mindfulness piece, is looking at, and mindfulness from a perspective of curiosity, of how is this experienced as a human being? How is this, um, this state of mind being experienced as a human being? Not what can it do for me or how can I get something or get rid of something, but what is this experience? When we, when we notice that greed, aversion, delusion arising, there's the possibility not always. Sometimes the, mo- the momentum towards action out of those... Not sure what's happening there. <laughs> um, sometimes the momentum of action towards... Uh, out of greed, aversion, and delusion is strong enough that we, we can't necessarily stop it. And yet, we may be able to be aware of it and... I often say, do the best we can with that process. Sometimes uh, I say, get really good at cleaning up the mess. Be, be cognizant of the consequences of having acted out of it. The, the practice doesn't stop just because that momentum is strong. We can practice with, with it. And yet sometimes we also see beautiful things arise. We, see, we might see love and connection and generosity arising. And when those arise and we are mindful of them, we are aware of them, that serves to increase and uh, support their cultivation because our system, again, our system understands at a very deep level when we are experiencing generosity, our heart feels open and it, this intuitive understanding that this is 
leading towards well-being. When our heart is open and connected and feeling love or compassion, there's an intuitive understanding that this is skillful. And so it creates the conditions that support that. And then the concentration piece is um, it's basically the joining of effort and mindfulness. That when effort and mindfulness join together, there's a kind of a continuity of the possibility of being aware of what's happening in our hearts and minds. And that continuity of mindfulness is really what creates the power for us to understand suffering. And so that leads us right back to the first noble truth. That as we walk this path, engage with the the Eightfold Path, the practices there, especially the, the right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, as those stabilize, we can much more deeply understand suffering. And that understanding of suffering at a deep level, when we understand it at a deep level, we understand the craving that is at its core and that understanding allows that craving to release, allowing us to experience the freedom from that suffering. So these Four Noble Truths all work together to support us on our path, walking that map, following the journey ourselves. And so... um, what I wanted to do over the coming weeks was to go into these teachings that the Buddha taught for many years, um, almost 50 years, I think. And everything he taught comes into this framework. And so I thought I would use this framework over the coming weeks and just explore in more depth all of these teachings. This was the the high high level, <laughs> the high level picture of what the Buddha taught. And so to be continued. Thank you for your attention. <laughs>